0: Come back with me about 15 years ago to March of 1999. My wife, Nancy, got a call from Jane, one of her close friends that she had known since junior high school. And I've, I've changed the names of Jane and her family in this true story uh, because we pus- put these messages online. <clears throat> Jane was in our wedding. She was, uh, stayed with us after she graduated from college for a while. She was calling Nancy from the emergency room of Boston Children's Hospital Uh, Because her four-year-old daughter, Sally, was undergoing an MRI at that moment to try to identify the cause for Sally's slurred speech and increasing clumsiness. Jane was worried and had called to talk. At the end of their conversation, Nancy prayed with her and told her to keep us posted. At 11 p.m. that night, uh, Jane called back, and she was utterly distraught. Sally had an inoperable brain tumor and the doctors gave her no chance to live past a year. So they started Sally on radiation therapy right away to buy some extra time. We stayed in close touch and visited numerous times. At Sally's request once, Nancy even drove our daughter Amanda to Massachusetts just so she could paint Sally's fingernails green. It was heart-wrenching to watch this delightful and gifted child lose her ability to walk, to draw, and to finally to speak. We watched her incredibly dedicated mom and dad pour out all the love they had on her to make her last days as full as possible. Jane and her husband Dave struggled with how to talk to Sally about what was going on and what would happen to her. Though they considered themselves spiritual people, they did not believe in life after death, so what comfort could they offer her? The pastor at their church even advised them that death was an adult issue and it shouldn't be discussed with this young a child. Let me pause for a moment and uh, ask you to think about something. Put yourself in Jane and Dave's shoes. You don't have any conviction about God and don't believe in life after death or heaven or a personal relationship with a creator. And you have a four-year-old daughter who you love just to pieces and is suffering from a terminal illness. What do you tell her? How do you think about her fate? And how do you deal with this tragedy yourself? So we stayed involved and supportive. We sent a tape recorder to Sally at her hospital and included all kinds of tapes, including children's stories talking about the God who loved her. We talked with Jane and Dave. We wrote them a prayer, and Dave thanked us for us, and he told us that he wished he had our faith, but he didn't, and he couldn't. On a Friday morning about eight months later, Nancy got the call. Sally had died in the night. Surrounded by her loved ones. And although we knew it was coming, we were still stunned. Jane told us about the family gathering around Sally's bed, giving permission to Sally to... Go over the rainbow because you see, The Wizard of Oz has been one of Sally's favorite movies, and this was how they decided to talk about her death with her. The funeral was one of the most touching ones we'd been to. It was a great celebration of Sally's short life and wonderful personality. Yet there was no talk of the future, of life after death, or of seeing Sally again. There was no talk of God and his love for us and his sadness about one of his beloved creatures having to suffer and die. In fact, the only time the word God was uttered was when we sang the third verse of Amazing Grace. The funeral was a beautiful ritual, but it felt empty and meaningless to us because it offered no real hope. After all this, Jane confided in Nancy that in the moments after Sally died, after the hospice nurses had washed her body, Jane spent some last minutes with Sally. Jane said she opened Sally's eyes and looked into them. And Jane said that she could see something was missing that had been there right up until the moment of death. And so she concluded that this missing something must be Sally's spirit, her soul. And Jane said that, well, maybe, just maybe, there was something eternal and spiritual to Sally something beyond just the physical body and mere human existence. So maybe there was some truth to what we had been telling her about God and our faith. Her heart opened up to God just a little bit in the midst of that tragedy. So now let me shift and tell you a different story. It's about me and how I came to faith. I'm about as native Short Hills as you can get, I was born and grew up here. I went to Pingree, Pingree, then stayed in New Jersey and went to Princeton. I spent five years away from Short Hills in grad school at MIT, and when I started work on Wall Street over 26 years ago, we moved right back here to Short Hills, and we've been here ever since. And some of you even know that my favorite teacher in the whole wide world was my second grade teacher here, none other than Renaissance's own Pat Lauber. Some of you may know her. Growing up, I had absolutely no belief or interest in God or spiritual things. I had no need to. I was talented and successful. I was a state champion in various swimming events even at a young age. I started on Pingree's soccer team. I was captain of the swim team and even became the class valedictorian. I was smart and intellectual and a big believer in science as the root to all truth. And religion was for those who were weaker and less talented those who needed some solace or crutch to help them get through life. I entered Princeton ready to conquer the world. I soon fell fell head over heels for my freshman physics lab partner, Nancy, who was way smarter than I and had everything I respected and longed for. She was the sharpest, most insightful, and most determined and tough person that I knew. Now, Nancy grew up under very difficult circumstances. Her parents divorced when she was four months old and basically abandoned her. She was raised by her grandparents, who were poor, displaced farmers. Her story is a whole message of itself, and I ask you to talk to her, talk to her about it sometime. Well, Nancy and I became friends, or more accurately, I pursued her, and she barely tolerated me. She had to since I was her lab partner but I don't know how she coped with my arrogance. When school was about to break for Christmas vacation, she gave me a Christmas card and wrote me a letter describing what Christmas meant to her. She explained that she believed that the biblical account of God coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior was true. He lived on earth to teach and to die in our place so that God could satisfy his justice and mercifully make the way for us to have our own relationship with him restored. I was blown away in a bad way. How could the smartest, toughest person I know believe this baloney? I had lots of good reasons for rejecting Christianity. I mean, first, there were the intellectual problems with Christianity and its teachings. I mean, everyone knew the Bible was just a bunch of old myths and full of errors like every, every other religious text. Not only had modern science proven the Bible to be full of glaring mistakes, but just in itself it had lots of contradictions. I mean, clearly no one believed the accounts of Noah in the ark, Moses parting the Red Sea, Jonah in the belly of the whale, or Jesus' miracles. And then there was the whole discrediting of the first few chapters of Genesis by modern science. I mean, come on. And why would I want to follow Jesus, who was a first-class wimp? All he talked about was forgiveness and turning the other cheek. He never stood up for himself. He and his disciples got walked on like doormats. And after all, he got tortured and killed. And look how so many people abandoned successful and productive lives to become his cult followers, wandering around, homeless. How could anyone succeed in life by following these examples? Then there were the Christians that repelled me. They just weren't the kind of people I wanted to associate with. Those airbrushed televangelists in polyester suits who I'd get a glimpse of on TV, ranting and raving, were just manipulating people through their emotional pleas and fake miracles. All they wanted was my money, and I wasn't going to fall for that. And devout Christians were so narrow-minded and small-minded. How could there only be one way to God, What about all the other religions in the world, some with many more followers than Christianity? How could a small number of not very intelligent people who blindly follow some obviously flawed teaching be right and the rest of the world wrong? I wouldn't want to be caught dead, beholden to to an antiquated, close-minded, and intellectually flawed religion like Christianity. And with their judgmental attitude, if you didn't believe exactly what they believed, you are going to hell, literally. And to top it off, these Christians just didn't have any fun. I mean, they didn't go to R-rated movies, they didn't drink, they didn't do any of the things that teenage boys dreamed about. I mean, how unappealing. Boy, were they missing out on life. And they're also missing out in death. Who'd want to spend eternity sitting on a cloud playing the harp? I liked how Billy Joel put it in Only the Good Die Young. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. So you get my drift here. To any self-respecting New York metro area intellectual, religion was just the opiate of the masses. For those too weak to command their own destiny, it was a lie, it was a crutch, certainly to be pitied. So I wanted nothing to do with any of this. All right, so Nancy sent me this Christmas card. I wrote her back a scathing letter, lambasting her beliefs. I picked them apart, piece by piece. She's kept that letter to this day. (laughs) And I can tell you, it's pretty obnoxious. No, it's very obnoxious. And I'm quite embarrassed. Here she revealed a profound and dearly held part of herself to me, and I trampled it underfoot and unloaded on her, really knowing nothing about the whole topic. What was her response? She bailed on me, demanded a new lab partner in the second semester. No. (laughs) She told me she had researched this Christianity and found it to be true and surely I wouldn't dismiss it without examining the evidence. So she challenged me to read the Bible and study the topic to figure out what I believed rather than simply dismissing it out of hand. How could I say no? Here was my dream girl who had it all together and especially had the thing that deep inside I really wanted and was missing, the true purpose to live for. So I took her up on her challenge. Over Christmas vacation, I read the New Testament twice. I didn't understand a word it said. But I was trying. I was trying hard. When school was back in session, I began to go to church with her on Sundays. And we'd come back and have brunch together. I would spend two hours over brunch picking apart the sermon and the people at the church. Everything was wrong with it and with them. I pushed back on every point. I was relentless. But somehow, Nancy hung in there with me. And over the course of the next six months, I talked more with the people at Nancy's church. And some of them were chemists and chemical engineers, and I was a chemical engineering major. And lo and behold, there were even some grad students and professors from Princeton. So with their credibility, Christianity's claims gradually grew more reasonable in my eyes. And what they said about the truth of the accounts in the Bible and the intellectual integrity of Christianity started making more sense to me. And as God was chipping away at my intellectual concerns, he also began to touch my heart. These Christians... Christians seemed a lot different from the characters that I had in my mind. They were pretty smart and balanced and happy. They had good family lives. They weren't perfect, but they were attractive and appealing to someone like me. And they cared for one another and valued each other as people created in God's image, not because of what someone had accomplished or what someone could do for them. My heart and my mind were softening and I became more inclined to think of this faith faith as legit and even attractive. But that was scary to me because as it started making more sense and as my objections to Christianity were being stripped away, I was confronted with one very direct and uncomfortable foundational truth of the faith, that though I was created by God, I was broken, fallen, pursuing my own path rather than acknowledging my dependence on him and living accordingly. This self-confident high school valedictorian, this Ivy Leaguer, didn't measure up in God's eyes. I thought and said and did things that violated God's moral character, and I knew it. I was, in a word, sinful. I couldn't meet God's holy standards. Therefore, I needed to be reconciled to God, But how? Well, God himself provided the solution. To satisfy God's own justice, God sent Jesus to die in my place to take that punishment that I deserved so that I could then be forgiven by God and enter into a relationship with him. I needed to embrace this savior in order to know God. My need for a savior was a really hard pill for me to swallow. I considered myself a good person, so this was humbling. But I'd done the research. It made intellectual sense. I'd grilled these people. They were credible and admirable role models. I'd examined the practical applications of these truths, and they worked. So I had no choice. By the end of my freshman year at college, I committed myself to following Jesus. Now, it meant that my life might change a lot. But I liked my life the way it was. I was worried about what my friends would think that I'd sold out my mind to a stupid, indefensible religion. I still had a long, long way to go in understanding and embracing this faith, and it's been a lifelong pursuit, accompanied by a profound sense of peace and purpose and acceptance by God. I've benefited from wonderful guidance about lots of things, including practical everyday living, how to be a better husband, a better father, how to build relationships at last. My values are very different from what they would have been had I not become a Christian, thank God. There have also been lots of difficult times and periods of doubt. And that's okay. We'll always have those concerns this side of heaven because we're still flawed humans. But with ongoing study and learning, God has given me increasing confidence in the absolute truth and transforming power of Christ. So now I want to take a few minutes and share with you some reflections on my story and on Jane and Dan's story and how they apply to what we're doing here at Renaissance and can apply to each of our lives. My first reflection is that God reaches people through their needs. Jane and Dave are very accomplished in so many ways. They are both alums of good colleges Jane joined a successful high tech company early on and was there when it went public. They have been wonderful, loving, and dedicated parents to two other children in addition to Sally. They consider themselves religious and even spiritual and have been very involved in a church. But they don't believe there's a real, personal God. To them, God is whatever you want to make him. Only the rituals and the morals are important. But when it mattered most, when their world came crashing down, when their four-year-old girl was dying, all their education and all their loving and all their best efforts could do nothing to make their child better. Their beliefs gave them no true hope or comfort to deal with this tragedy. They were heartbroken that this, we were heartbroken that this family, our longtime friends, so full of love and goodness, had no hope of seeing their child again, no hope of eternal life, At this darkest moment, they felt their need acutely and were a little more open to hearing God. These needs that we have may look different in different people. For inner-city homeless, their needs may be food, shelter, and clothing. For the natives in Africa or the impoverished in Guatemala, they may be medical care and homes. For Jane and Dave, it was Sally's tragedy. For me... It was a massive crush on Nancy, coupled with a deep desire for purpose and meaning. We all have felt needs, whether or not we're aware of them or acknowledge them. And for all of us, without a relationship with God, we cannot be whole and truly fulfilled. God uses our felt needs, our discontentments, to open us up to himself. At Renaissance, we try to address the felt needs of the people in our community, so that we can also reach them with the transforming message of Christ. So what are the felt needs of our friends and neighbors? Well, we've found pockets in our community that have significant material and financial needs, hence the success of the Renaissance Cares efforts with the Summit Food Pantry and the Dyfus Christmas gifts. But many needs in our community are not material, and they're kept private. Difficult marriages, troubling parent-child relationships, Identity and self-worth issues because of the emphasis on success and achievement for both adults and kids. Life tragedies, such as a fatal illness or a child succumbing to substance abuse. These are deep and acute needs, and often God speaks to people during these times because we know we need help then. We're vulnerable and open and can't do it ourselves. At Renaissance, while many of our series touch on these kinds of issues, we can't fully address them in a public forum. Rather, it takes high-touch personal involvement. Hence, our emphasis here is on a personal ministry rather than cookie-cutter mass ministry. And that's why we've rolled out Renaissance small groups and why they're so successful, because people can find help and support in private with their personal challenges. God reaches people through their needs. Second, God is an equal opportunity savior. What do I mean by that? Everyone needs to be reconciled to God. The poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, and the highly educated, the worldly successful people like Jane and Dave and me. God loves all his creatures and desires that all be reconciled to him. And often the people who are most materially successful are the most spiritually needy, yet the hardest to reach. I figure if I can be turned around by God, anyone can. Churches so often invest their resources and mind share reaching the native in Africa or the impoverished inner city kid. Those are great causes, and God blesses those efforts. But churches also often overlook their friends and neighbors in their own backyard. Right here in our area are thousands of Janes and Daves and people like me. Highly educated, successful, thoughtful people working hard in raising their families who have never had an opportunity to explore faith in the true God in an environment that welcomes them and meets them where they live. They are our friends and neighbors. This is where God puts us and he wants us to love these people and help address the deepest need they have to be reconciled to God through Jesus. God is an equal opportunity savior. A third reflection, God uses the church to help reach people. Sort of a duh statement, right? But let me try to peel that apart a little bit. Over the years, Nancy and I have had open and deep discussions with Jane and Dave about their faith and about our faith. They've seen us apply our faith in good times and in bad times and in Nancy's case, for over more than 40 years. In their minds, they've dismissed our faith as a crutch to lean on in tough times, a fiction that highly educated, intelligent people know better than to fall for, because we're just one data point. We've wished that there could be some church near them where they could meet other people of faith who were like them, who worked with them, who played with them, shopped with them, who could engage with them at their level, But the only churches we could find were so inwardly focused and so culturally different from them that it seemed futile. We felt they'd get superficial answers and that their lifestyle and thinking would have been frowned on. Their honest, tough questions would not have been addressed thoughtfully or even welcomed. Going to church would not be a positive experience for them. When I was exploring my faith in college, meeting Christians in addition to Nancy who engaged with me at my level, whom I could respect and identify with, was instrumental in my progress. They were knowledgeable and articulate about their beliefs. They were caring and lived lives that I could respect and even aspire to. And they were open to my doubts and my questions. They countered the negative stereotypes that I had been exposed to, and they weren't cult followers or narrow-minded they made becoming a Christian an attractive thing, a positive step. Many churches treat treat reaching people who don't know God as a secondary priority and focus most of their energies on those who are already there. They develop an inward-focused culture that is disconnected from the community in which they live and is therefore uncomfortable to outsiders. But a healthy church concentrates on outreach, and it is through multiple people with different personalities and perspectives that someone seeking God can be drawn effectively. That's one of the most powerful things about the church. With this thought in mind in 2000, Nancy and I and four other families, including Kathy and Tammy Tobitch and Carol Webster, left good churches and left the comfort of our friendships and religious routines in those places to start a completely different type of church in this community. Different not in beliefs. No, as you know, Renaissance is very traditional there. But just different in emphasis and mission. We did not start Renaissance primarily to create a comfortable church home for ourselves and our families. Rather, Renaissance was designed for people who are wrestling with their faith and searching for answers. And they are not yet Christians. They do not yet believe in God. Or they don't know what they believe about God or Jesus. At every step we try to think about our friends and neighbors and create a place where they would want to come to meet God. Renaissance is designed to be a positive environment with a culture of grace where people feel comfortable exploring their faith. For example, we have awesome rock music because we think it resonates with our culture. Our friends go to Springsteen concerts, not the Metropolitan Opera. Heck, if they wanted to hear Gregorian chants, We do those here at Renaissance. Our messages are relevant and tuned into our lives. They're as free of Christian jargon as we can make them. And we'll take on real life issues head on. It's what we're all dealing with in our homes and in our workplaces and our schools. We have on staff professionals to lead our children's and students ministries because the parents in our communities will sacrifice everything to advance their kids. We try to do every ministry in the highest quality way, both because God deserves our best, but also because our community around here demands it. Our friends and our neighbors are extremely busy and have little free time. So if we want them to spend any of it at Renaissance, it better be high quality. And we want you to have the confidence that if your friends show up at any weekend service, they won't be disappointed. Another example of how we try to be outward focused is that the very name of the church, Renaissance, was chosen by our non-Christian friends. Ask us sometime about how that happened. So I encourage you to tap into all that Renaissance has to offer in order to be more effective in reaching your friends and neighbors. Participate in the project. Get into a small group. Use the resources that Renaissance recommends to study the Bible and really get to know God better through it. These will help you grow and be better at introducing a friend or neighbor to God. Invite people to our events, the Christmas concerts, the Saturday night at the Opera House, the concert on the green, special services like Christmas Eve and Easter. Those are common times for people to be interested in attending church. Use the church to reach your friends and neighbors because God uses the church to help reach people. My fourth and last point, God pursues people doggedly through trusted friends. Sometimes coming to God can be a very long, arduous process. For me, it certainly was. Some of you may have embraced Christ shortly after you were introduced. Others of you may have been more like me, highly resistant and argumentative. I like to say that I came to faith kicking and screaming because I fought against it the whole way. There's a verse in Romans that Paul writes, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Well, I sure was God's enemy. Not because I did particularly bad stuff, but because I wanted to preserve my own autonomy and not acknowledge and submit to him. So God worked on me slowly and deliberately. I had lots of objections, some valid, some just excuses. And I needed to work through them all. And it took a whole year until I came to Christ And frankly, another two years before I really embraced that wholeheartedly. But once I did, I was committed. It stuck. And it wouldn't have happened if God hadn't used Nancy to push me and not let me rest until I resolved this, sticking with me as a loyal, patient friend all along the way. She cared that much about me. Now, God calls us all to do the same thing with our friends and neighbors, If we aren't going to introduce our friends to Christ, who is? You may think, well, I'm not qualified to do that. I don't know enough. I don't have the answers to their questions. I have all sorts of flaws. So what kind of example can I be to them? Well, we're all flawed, but God uses us. He calls us to do this. Now, be forewarned. You'll make yourself vulnerable. It's a lot easier to go on a missions trip in another country or in the inner city, and share the gospel with people whom you don't know and will never see again, isn't it? It's much harder to do so with your friends and neighbors and fellow club members or your co-workers, your fellow students, because you have to live with them every day. But this is where God places you. Your love for God and your love for your friends compels us to do so. It will take a huge commitment and persistence on your part. Don't expect your friends and neighbors to respond and come around instantly. Be patient with them as God works in their hearts. We've had some friends whom we've spoken to for years finally make progress. It started with an invitation to a Christmas concert and then progressed to an occasional service attendance and then to more regular attendance and then to the project. These folks are still on their path and they're going at their own pace as God works, and that's just fine. We don't need quick conversions. You've probably noticed in our services that we don't put any pressure on folks to repent and be saved. That just isn't how our people think and make decisions. It would turn them off. It definitely would cheapen the experience and likely wouldn't stick. Rather, God wants you to walk with them through the process because God pursues people doggedly through trusted friends. So I've got a challenge for you, for each of you. Um, And before I give that, I want to give some perspective by looking at a passage in Romans chapter 10 that Paul uh, uses to talk about God's desire that all people come to him and that we need to communicate this message to them. So in in, uh, Romans 10, Paul writes... If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now a note here, when Paul was writing this, the early church comprised both Jewish and non-Jewish believers, with the Jewish believers claiming a bit of a better pedigree because of their heritage of being God's chosen people to whom the Messiah was sent. But Paul's making it clear here that everyone is equally called and loved by God, regardless of their background or station in life. Paul then continues, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? So here's my challenge to you. Maybe you identify with my story or Jane and Dave's story. If you're exploring your faith and exploring the truth of Christianity in your relationship with God, then find a trusted friend to help you along the journey. Someone who's going to prod you and encourage you. Someone who won't let you rest until you've got this matter settled. It's just way too important. If, on the other hand, you're already a follower of Christ, I'd like you to do two things. You get the bonus challenge. First, think about one or two friends whom you want to help find God and resolve to let God use you in that way over the coming months and years. Make a commitment to love them sacrificially. Build a relationship of trust so that you can help them in their tough times. Be there for them when they need you. You know, oftentimes when people hit a tough patch, they get ill or they lose a loved one or they get laid off or whatever. When that happens most of their acquaintances will avoid them because they don't know how to deal with that. But I urge you to do the opposite. Run to your friend and be there for them. They need your care and support and you have a special and uniquely helpful message to bring to them about God's love and care for them. Let God use you in those times of your friend's need to reach them. You know, about a year ago, there was a young girl, very young girl in New Providence, who succumbed to the same tragic brain tumor as Sally. And there were a number of families here at Renaissance who were able to befriend them and support them through that ordeal and afterward. And even right now, in our community, there's a young boy who's facing a very similar plight. His family is devastated and hurting badly And there's a Renaissance family who's supporting them. And we as a church even have the privilege and responsibility of praying for them. Just this week on the prayer chain came through a request about this young boy and his family. So you see, our friends and neighbors are encountering personal, overwhelming tragedies all the time. And we're called by God to reach out to them in their times of need. And if they're not followers of Christ then maybe God is using this development in their lives to open their hearts to him. So we need to be sensitive to that and to be willing to share our faith with them when they're receptive. And if they don't respond right away, that's okay. Be patient. Continue to pray for them. Prod them when they need prodding and encourage them when they need encouraging. If you think it would be helpful along their journey, invite them to a Renaissance event. Don't give up on them. The second thing I want you to do is to take stock of your own lifestyle. How do you spend your time and your energies and your resources? Are you doing so intentionally to develop friendships and introduce people to Christ? Do you connect your non Christians' friends with your Christian friends? For example, when you have a Fourth of July party and include the families from your daughter's Little League team, do you also invite a few Renaissance friends or a pastor? Have you thought about having a party before one of the Christmas concerts and inviting a bunch of friends from your kid's school and a few Renaissance friends as well? Do you look to create opportunities to have conversations about spiritual matters? When your friends ask you what's going on in your life, do you tell them about your church or your small group or the project that you're attending? I'll never forget an anecdote that an older Christian man told me about, about thirty years ago, which I thought demonstrated a really insightful example of how he introduced Christ in a conversation with a coworker. So Jim was a manager at a large corporation at the time, and one of his co workers was having a really hard time coping with the loss of his father. So during a casual lunchtime conversation, when the coworker asked Jim what was what he was doing that weekend, Jim led with, I'm going to church co-worker asked, well, why? What goes on in your church anyway? So what do you think Jim responded? I thought this was brilliant. He said, we talk about important issues in our life, like death. That then led to further conversations with the co-worker because of the acute need that was front and center in his mind and his heart. Jim deliberately created an opportunity to connect with his co-worker about spiritual matters. God wants us all to reach our friends and neighbors, and he's given us the church as a helpful tool. We can help them find substantive answers to their troubling questions and their deepest needs with the hope that they may ultimately find God, just as I did in college, and just as I hope and pray that Jane and Dave will do someday. Let's pray. Lord, as we have our eyes closed, I want each of us here to think about somebody whom we know who is struggling and needs God in their life. It may be one of us. Or it may be a friend or a neighbor or a family member. I'd like each of us to commit in our heart today to help them on their journey. Right now, in fact, while we're quiet, Let's each of us just say a short, silent prayer for that one person that we're thinking about. In the coming days and weeks, let's pray for opportunities to talk with them about our faith. Be a loyal friend. Watch God work in their lives in ours. God, thank you for being the answer to our deepest longings, our deepest needs, and reconciling us to yourself, our creator, through Jesus Christ.